Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 156, The Federalists. Now, before we begin today, I'd like to do a bit of housekeeping. I've been recently interviewed about my origins in podcasting and my thoughts on the situation in Ukraine by my good friend Broyfield from Intelligent Speech. That's available on the Clubhouse app. If you search for Intelligent Speech in the app, it should come up. Um, I was also on last week's episode of History of Westeros podcast. Uh, they're currently in the middle of doing a Valar rereadus of The World of Fire and Ice, and brought me on to talk about the expansion of the Valyrian Freehold and the wars against Old Gis. Uh, George R. R. Martin uses a lot of historical inspiration for coming up with his world of Westeros, so we talk about the ancient world of Greece, Rome and Carthage, and how that serves as an inspiration for the series. It was a ridiculously fun episode to record, and they are great people over at History of Westeros. Um, and those who say that my episodes of this series are too short... The episode we recorded is about two and a half hours long, so if you like listening to me geek out on history and Game of Thrones, you can go listen to that. But anyway, enough plugs. On with the show. Quote, What a triumph for the advocates of despotism, to find that we are incapable of governing ourselves, and that systems founded on the basis of equal liberty are merely ideal and fallacious. Would to God that wise measures may be taken in time to avert the consequences we have but too much reason to apprehend. End quote. Uh, that is from George Washington's reaction to Shays' Rebellion, which was the subject we covered last time. Over the last few episodes, we've been focused primarily on economics. We looked at the economic war with Britain, the shortage of specie, the post-war economic depression, and the creditor-debtor conflicts that were playing out across the United States. It was a powder keg about to explode, which it did in Massachusetts when the farmers of the West protested the decisions of the merchant-dominated assembly in Boston. This was Shays' Rebellion. Washington viewed the situation as a fundamentally political problem, seeing the root as being the Articles of Confederation, which we discussed at length in episode 153. He wasn't the only person who felt this way. Now, the Articles of Confederation produced a weak central government, but it hadn't been wholly inactive since its creation. A few notable contributions to American history had been made. Perhaps the most important was the 1785 Land Ordinance, originally drafted by Thomas Jefferson, which is the reason why the American states have their familiar checkerboard appearance. The public lands would be divided into townships, which would be six miles square, with each township divided into 36 smaller sections, which would be sold to developers at a minimum of a dollar an acre. There was also the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, which would determine the settlement of the Ohio Valley, which would have three distinct phases of political development. In phase one, there would be a governor and judges appointed by Congress. In phase two, which began when there were 5,000 free male inhabitants, the land would become a territory. A territory was basically an American colony. It would have its own self-governing legislature, and a non-voting delegate in Congress, 
though the governor would still be appointed by Congress. Finally, stage three began when the territory had a population of 60,000 free inhabitants. Then, if Congress permitted, the territory could become a full member state of the Union. This basic formula would be copied throughout American history and would see the original 13 states expand to 50. To help protect the original 13, it was also decided that the area covered by the Northwest Ordinance could be covered by a minimum of three but no more than five states, and that slavery would not be allowed there. In due time, the newly created Northwest Territory would become the states of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. These were two notable accomplishments, but it wasn't enough. Congress had no diplomatic or military power, the root cause being its inability to raise taxes. This is why we spent so much time covering the taxation system in episode 153. Congress could only ask for funds from the states and had no way to force them to pay. Hugh Brogan, in his Penguin History of the United States, makes the humorous point that Congress had less of an ability to tax American citizens than George III did after the repeal of the Stamp Act, as George III was able to impose a duty on tea. At one point, the standing army was reduced to 80. That's not 80 companies or squadrons, but 80 people. Just about everybody could agree this wasn't right. But in terms of what to do about it, that they couldn't agree on. There was an attempt to raise a 5% import duty, but this required unanimous assent from all the states, and they were never able to get all 13 to agree. Indeed, American unity looked to be fading. The individual states ran autonomously, which tended to create resentment, such as when New York imposed a tax on ships going through New York waters to either New Jersey or Connecticut. That said, while there was distrust, and the small states feared a greater degree of central control, some believed that a stronger central government was the only solution to end this period of disorder. Two of those would be hugely influential. I'm of course talking about Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Now, the last time we caught up with Hamilton was in episode 150, when he was still on George Washington's staff during the whole Benedict Arnold incident, and he's had a busy few years since then. Hamilton spent months lobbying Washington for reassignment, he wanted to lead on the battlefield rather than continue to draft Washington's correspondence, but Washington felt that Hamilton was indispensable, and so kept him close. Tension mounted until a breach was inevitable. On February the 16th, 1781, Washington and Hamilton passed each other at the top of a flight of stairs. Washington said to Hamilton that they needed to speak. Hamilton needed to hand over some papers, but told Washington he would be there in a few moments. He handed over the papers, but on his way to Washington, he bumped into the Marquis de Lafayette, who grabbed him for a quick chat. Hamilton would later say this whole series of events took place in less than two minutes. He left Lafayette, returned to the stairs, where a furious Washington was waiting. Washington accused Hamilton of being disrespectful, and an offended Hamilton threatened his resignation. Washington said fine, and stormed off, and that was that. Washington and Hamilton broke up. It wouldn't last long the men reconciled, 
but Hamilton would not serve again on Washington's staff, and eventually he won his military commission. He led several battalions during the Battle of Yorktown. After the war, Hamilton went back to New York, and passed the bar after six months of self-education. He was heavily involved in New York life, and was a founding shareholder of the Bank of New York, which still exists as BNY Mellon. But most significantly for our story, he served as a New York delegate to Congress in 1782-3. Hamilton was at this stage already critical of the Articles of Confederation. He did not think it fit the purpose. While in Congress, he would form an alliance with a Virginian planter, James Madison. Madison was born in March 1751 at the Belgrove Plantation in northeastern Virginia. His father was a tobacco farmer who owned a 5,000-acre estate and about 100 slaves, with the family moving to a new house in the 1760s called Montpellier. He didn't attend the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, as did many of his fellow Virginians, such as Thomas Jefferson, instead attending the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, at the age of 16. He was often in poor health and thought Princeton would be a better climate for him. He studied the classics, theology, Hebrew and political philosophy, returning home in 1772. His time at Princeton would form a large part of Madison's outlook, instilling in him enlightenment thinking and liberal political philosophy centering on the rights of happiness. He considered turning to law, but while he studied law, he would never do a formal apprenticeship and would soon be wrapped up in the War of Independence, where he was commissioned as a colonel in the local militia. But sickly as he was, the military was not his true calling. Politics was. He was elected to the 5th Virginia Convention, which would form the 1st Virginian Constitution, and after this he would join the Virginia House of Delegates and then the Council of State, where he became an ally of Governor Thomas Jefferson. He served in this role until 1779, when he was elected to the Second Continental Congress, where Madison became increasingly frustrated with Congress's inability to raise funds. He used the time well to learn the ropes of finance, as well as how to work a legislature, though he was unable to pass legislation granting Congress the authority to independently raise revenue through import tariffs, a measure supported by Hamilton. The two would make a good team, Hamilton was dazzling and full of intellect, while Madison was deeply learned, warm, and easily won friends over. The two would only work together for a short time, but they held similar nationalist views. They both went their separate ways. Hamilton returned to law in New York, while Madison became a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates, but they would continue to work towards the same goal. Madison took a leading role in driving events from Virginia helping set up the March 1785 Mount Vernon Conference. The background to this was, obviously given the tone of this week's episode, the weak central government. The limited power of Congress meant that the states would often squabble amongst themselves, as we saw earlier with the New York, New Jersey and Connecticut situation. A significant political struggle was the Potomac River, which was the border between Maryland and Virginia. Both states realised that they would need to cooperate to improve the waterway, so the Potomac Company was chartered, and a conference was set up between delegates of the two states to agree on how the river would be used, 
and to settle issues of navigation, defence and piracy. George Washington offered to host, and the two groups convened in March 1785 at Mount Vernon. The conference was a resounding success and was ratified by both states. While the conference was significant for the history of the Potomac River, I wouldn't be mentioning it if this was the only thing it was notable for. Crucially, it showed that cooperation between states could resolve economic problems and helped establish the idea of a larger conference that could solve the commercial issues affecting the Union as a whole. This led to the Annapolis Convention of 1786. Virginia sent out invitations to all the states to meet at Annapolis, Maryland, for what was formally titled the Meeting of Commissioners to Remedy Defects of the Federal Government. Connecticut, Maryland, South Carolina and Georgia did nothing, and New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island and North Carolina did not send delegates in time for them to make the conference, but delegates from New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware and Virginia did meet in September 1786 to discuss the trade disputes that were adding to the economic crisis of the 1780s. While only five states attended, crucially these included New York and Virginia, meaning that both Hamilton and Madison were there to argue their case. Madison was persuasive enough to bring the other delegates around, and it was decided that Hamilton would draft a letter to the states. This letter was worded moderately, but did make a strong argument. The Articles of Confederation were rotten, and the problems affecting the Union could only be resolved by redrafting them. I'll let the 12 delegates expand on this in their own words. Quote, That there are important defects in the system of the federal government is acknowledged by the acts of all those states, which have concurred in the present meeting, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia. That the defects, upon a closer examination, may be found greater and more numerous than even these acts imply, is at least so far probable, from the embarrassments which characterise the present state of our national affairs, foreign and domestic, as may reasonably be supposed to merit a deliberate and candid discussion, in some mode, which will unite the sentiments and counsels of all the states. In the choice of the mode, your commissioners are of opinion that a convention of deputies from the different states, the special and sole purpose of entering into this investigation and digesting a plan for supplying such defects as may be discovered to exist, will be entitled to a preference from consideration, which will occur without being particularised. Your commissioners decline an enumeration of those national circumstances on which their opinion respecting the propriety of a future convention with more enlarged powers is founded, as it would be an useless intrusion of facts and observations, most of which have been frequently the subject of public discussion and none of which can have escaped the penetration of those to whom they would be in this instance be addressed. They are, however, of a nature so serious as, in the view of your commissioners, to render the situation of the United States delicate and critical, calling for an exertion of the united virtue and wisdom of all the members of the Confederacy. Under this impression, your commissioners, with the most respectful deference, beg leave to suggest their unanimous conviction that it may essentially tend to advance the interests of the Union 
if the states, by whom would they have been respectfully delegated, would themselves concur and use their endeavours to procure the concurrence of the other states in the appointment of commissioners to meet at Philadelphia on the second Monday in May next, to take into consideration the situation of the United States, to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the constitution of a federal government adequate to the exigencies of the Union, and to report such an act for that purpose to the United States in Congress assembled, as when agreed to by them, and afterwards confirmed by the legislatures of every state, will effectually provide for the same. Though your commissioners could not with propriety address these observations and sentiments to any but the states they have the honour to represent, they have nevertheless concluded from motives of respect to transmit copies of this report to the United States in Congress assembled and to the executives of the other states. End quote. At first glance, it can seem a bit jarring that 12 individuals could send out a letter to the states arguing that they needed a new government because the current one was so broken. Maybe, under ordinary circumstances, such a letter would have been ignored. However, between this letter being sent in September 1786 and the proposed date for the Philadelphia Convention in May 1787, something significant happened. Shays Rebellion. Let's go back to the Washington quote that started this episode. What a triumph for the advocates of despotism to find that we are incapable of governing ourselves and that systems founded on the basis of equal liberty are merely ideal and fallacious. Would to God that wise measures may be taken in time to avert the consequences we have but too much reason to apprehend. End quote. Fearful of more rebellions breaking out, and their new nation disintegrating, many Americans agreed with Washington that wise measures needed to be taken. So join me next time when the Founding Fathers gather in Philadelphia to attempt to save the Union. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Thank you.